Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, adapters, to a new episode of America Adapts. In this episode, I host Barrett Rishtroff, an environmental lawyer and PhD student specializing in adaptation in tribal law. We dive really deep on the issues associated translocating tribal communities impacted by climate change in Alaska and how the current laws and regulations are inadequate for this emerging crisis. I also have a bonus segment. Just this past weekend, it was the huge climate march. I attended the big one here in Washington, D.C., and I went around and I did a few micro podcasts with marchers. And I also talked to your favorite guest, Tim Watkins, for a little bit, too. Okay, some big announcements. I just started a formal partnership with the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, or ASAP for short. Beth Gibbons is the managing director of ASAP, and she and I have formally set up a partnership where she'll highlight the show within her organization's newsletters, websites, and I'll highlight ASAP on this podcast and show notes. She'll also be a source of future guests because ASAP is this treasure trove of adaptation experts. So I'm really looking forward to that and starting this partnership. If you want to learn more, there is a link in the show notes. But if you're just very curious right now, they can be found at adaptationprofessionals.org. Check them out. They are a growing network of adaptation professionals, obviously very relevant to what I do. Okay, on next on that note, next week, I'll be attending the National Adaptation Forum. So this is the thing that happens only every two years, and it's in St. Paul, Minnesota. I will be there. And as part of this partnership with ASAP, I'll be doing daily digests, and I'll go around and interview conference attendees, and then I'll quickly publish that material each night of the conference. And so we'll have kind of an unusual schedule of America Adapt podcast coming out next week. Also, if you're at the conference, let me know. I would love to meet some of you guys in person and get some photos and share it on the Facebook page. Okay, it's been a busy couple of weeks for me. Last week, I visited Harvard University to record a podcast with their Graduate School of Design. The students have been working with the community of East Boston on adaptation planning, and they were presenting their work. It's definitely much more complex than that, and you'll have to hear the episode to, to understand what I mean. But I'd like to thank Harvard University and specifically Jesse Keenan for sponsoring me to come up and capture this work. Harvard is doing some amazing work. This was a major undertaking with many, many micro-podcasts. I have certainly had my work cut out for me piecing all these interviews together. But stay tuned. That will be out at some point. Also, another big announcement. I've been sponsored to participate in the Community-Based Adaptation Conference in Kampala, Uganda. Yikes. My first time to Africa. I'm really looking forward to this. I'm going to talk to the international community of uh, adaptation professionals, and I'll go around and create a podcast out of that trip. So very excited about that, and I'll have more details as that trip comes up in June. Okay. Also at the March, I got to meet one of my listeners here on America Daps, Megan Andrews. Megan, I just want to do a shout out. It was such a pleasure to meet you in person. We we maneuvered through the crowd. It was like walls of people. We found each other and we had a, a brief conversation. So pleasure, Megan. And okay, so upcoming episodes, like I said, National Adaptation Forum next week. Also have recorded with Ben Preston, who's an adaptation researcher with the RAND Corporation. Okay, now save the rest of the announcements at the end because I know you all have trigger fingers. You want to get started. But I do have to put a plug about supporting the podcast. I am an independent podcaster, so every little bit helps. I know some of you have been thinking about it. So visit the website at americadaps.org, and you'll see the option, a PayPal option. Thank you so much to those who are already supporting the podcast. It means so much that you have faith in the podcast and the content that I'm creating. So for others, if you are thinking about it, please consider. 
Okay, on that note, no more delay. Let's kick this off with Barrett Ristroff and Adaptation Law and then uh, the additional Climate March segment. All right, thanks. All right, welcome back, adapters. On today's episode, I have Barrett Ristroff, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Hawaii, and she is based in Fairbanks, Alaska, working on indigenous issues and adaptation planning and laws and policies, and we'll get into a lot of that, and I'm sure she can describe it better. But how are you doing, Barrett? I'm great, and I think you described it pretty well, actually. Um, and you were so nice about my title. I usually kind of just label myself as a nerd. Nerd. Okay. Well, we can go with nerd if that's what you want. But uh, just to give people some context, we'll start off with, I, with what I said. Okay, Barrett. So I start off every one of my podcasts with the exact same question. Okay. So you ready to answer it? I should be. What brings someone from Louisiana all the way to grad school at the University of Hawaii only to end up working on tribal issues in inland Alaska? Well, part of what motivates me for the PhD is vanity. I think that's what motivates any of us for a set of Western initials. I've had so many Alaska natives say to me, you know, look at me and look at this PhD thing and say, boy, if I happen to have those little initials after my name, think of all the grants and resources that I could get. I ought to have a PhD from all my knowledge and subsistence and the traditional knowledge that I have. Um, so, yeah, in the Western society, those PhD initials look great. And boy, howdy, I, I want to have them, too. But... I, in my career, I've kind of gone back and forth in the last 10 years between the Arctic and the tropics. I've had a stint in the Philippines and been in, in Russia and Arctic Alaska. But my, my work, as, as time went by, I, I got more interested. Like I said, I'm a, a nerd, an urban nerd, an urban vegetarian nerd. And when I lived in Arctic Alaska, this urban vegetarian nerd was eventually asked to assist a whaling captain cut up whale. Kind of weird wow, yeah. uh, for someone like me to do, but it it shows you how my beliefs and my feelings, as squeamish as I was when I started out, really took a shift. I looked at these people living there and I thought, look at me, I'm importing my soy powder from 4,000 miles away, and these people are really eating what's here locally, and they've been doing it for a long time, and they don't want to eat a McDonald's? Hey, I don't want to eat a McDonald's either. I get ya. And so I, I got more interested in... How can people support their way of lives? I'm interested in the cultural aspects of it. And even if you aren't interested in culture or if you don't care about human rights or people's ways of, of life, one might have an interest just in, say, a national security angle. There's something that should we should all be concerned about. It's We used to have what's called distant early warning posts out in remote Alaska and Canada back in the midst of the Cold War. And we don't have that anymore, but we do have people living in remote villages all over Alaska that are kind of out there on the edge. They're the first responders in case anything happens in the event that there's some kind of shipping accident or oil spill that may occur with all this increased shipping that's supposed to be going through the Arctic. And those people are right there. They're on the edge and they're our first peoples. They, they've been here for thousands of years. So you're at the University of Hawaii and it occurred to me that Generally, how the, it, it works is that one goes from Alaska to Hawaii, not Hawaii to Alaska. And so did you actually spend any time in Hawaii? I sure did. I, I jammed my coursework into about a year so I could get back over here because why would you want to enjoy tropical weather whenever right, right. you it's sit awful. here in April in the snow? I know. I need to make it a tan. Um, well, the, the truth is, as as I was starting to get interested in all these issues, I met my husband-to-be, who is a tribal leader in interior Alaska, 
And boy, he didn't want to move to Hawaii for whatever reason. He's at home here. Um, he hunts for bear and, and moose and, and kind of lives in both the Western world of politics as well as his traditional world. And he wasn't going anywhere. So I had to come back here and, um, was happy to do it. You know, there's a lot of space here. Alaskans have a certain outlook on life and it can grow on you. Well, I love that notion of you as a vegetarian helping cut up whale meat. That just <laughs> a vegetarian's worst nightmare. But as you were saying, in the context of the culture, it's it's something that's not unusual. So that's right. Okay, so before we really kind of jump into these policy questions and the meat, it just uh, you're off somewhere interesting, and you know you're in Fairbanks. But generally, you know, you, you sent me a, a couple photo, photographs recently. I think it was a. a a dog race, but I mean, what's the landscape like up there? You know, about a third of Alaska is concentrated into Anchorage, which is kind of like your anywhere America, at least two Walmarts. Um, so that's kind of anywhere, but, and then there's a couple of cities, Juneau and Fairbanks, which maybe have 30,000 people. So urban enough, you know, one Walmart, uh, one Walmart towns. Um, but yeah, most of these places out there in Alaska, it's a small population, but it's rural and it's remote. There is one big road that goes all the way from Anchorage up to Prudhoe Bay, where the oil was discovered back in the 60s. But out there in western Alaska, northern Alaska, there are just no roads to get where you want to go. So, you know, for thousands of years, people traveled with sled dogs on the snow or they went by boat. Um, and today, a village like my husband's, Gosh, everything that comes in that village just about comes in by plane. So you're out there, and his village doesn't have running water yet. Um, it is amazing for some people to hear that, that there are places in America. Um, there is central running water at the school and at the washeteria, but in the home, no running water, let alone Internet. There is electricity, which is nice. Uh, and the house is mostly heated by, by wood stove. So these are people kind of in this... In the strange place between Western society and traditional ways, trying to make the best of both, but sometimes kind of getting stuck in a place where they're, they're not getting the best of either. Well, you could probably spend a ton of time on it, but I guess just relatively briefly, and, you, and some of the material that you sent me helped me, because to be quite honest, I don't know a lot about indigenous issues in Alaska. And how would you sort of say the, the big differences are between tribes in the lower 48 in Alaska. I mean, they're, they're, what, what, like, you know, what are the significant sure. differences? And I'll try to be brief because the lawyers can go on and on. I think the big difference is how our native claims got settled. In the lower 48, you had treaties, which of course were broken, but they did provide some substantial rights. So tribes there, they have these treaty guaranteed rights to fishing and hunting. They also have reservations, many of them, the federally recognized ones. And those are places where they do have some jurisdiction over their land. We don't have either of those in Alaska. When oil was discovered, like I mentioned, back in the 60s, a quick settlement was carved out so they could try to lay down that pipeline to get the oil out. And the Alaska claims had never been settled from when uh, Russia purportedly sold Alaska to the Americans. So in this, this act that was passed by Congress and didn't have that many Alaskan natives actually um, being in there represented, but it made corporations 
from tribal members and gave them a fraction of their traditional lands. So they have about 10, 11% of the land base in Alaska. They were given $44 million and told to go forth and be good capitalists. And some of them did. Some of the corporations where they had uh, good resources, natural resources did develop and do very well. Some of the corporations uh, went bust and, They had a provision in the act to try to share some of the development wealth between all of the corporations in Alaska, and that has worked to some degree. But what you have, while some corporations and tribes work great together, in some cases you kind of have this decoupling, this dismemberment of corporations and, you know, people maybe who are not natives working for the corporations or they're headquartered in urban areas. And then you have the tribal members who may not always be the same as the corporate members off on their land over which they have no immediate control. Okay, and so my just—I don't even know what to call them. Like the more, not, not the indigenous people in Alaska, but like the, the whatever the white Alaskans. What would I should I just call them? just the non-natives? Not native, but they, non-natives. Yeah. They have been there for three or four generations, but when it comes to the big picture, they've been there for no time at all. How would you describe their relationship with the indigenous populations? Because I'm just visualizing like a lot of these people living in the the urban areas, and then you just described the a lot of the indigenous people living on these small remote areas. Is there a lot of interaction? Because, you know, in lower 48, there's just not that much. There sure is. And and in Alaska, it is across the board how you might characterize someone. I, I give the example, especially in Fairbanks. You see a guy with a long beard, you know, and looking kind of grubby. He may be the guy holding up a Confederate flag, which he bought off the street, which is no longer for sale in Mississippi. Or he may be holding up a sign that says no oil drilling. There's all colors and types over here, and you don't know who's what. There are a number of non-natives who do have their own strong hunting traditions. And the Alaska state law does kind of let anyone do subsistence, whether you're native or non-native. And the federal law also allows, it gives a rural preference, but anyone can go out and hunt. So there are certainly overlapping interest between different communities. There's not as many non-natives living out in the rural areas. There certainly are some. Some towns are not really, they were never a base of native people, but they were, there's a lot of um, utopian communities that were formed out in Alaska. But you do have some people who are very sympathetic with the cause of of some of these people trying to live their traditional ways of life. You have other people who um, sit in Anchorage behind their computer and don't really know what's going on out there and don't care to know. Well, I just, my my impression, just more nothing to do with the indigenous population, but, you know, you hear about this independent streak up in Alaska, but when it comes to federal dollars that funnel into Alaska, they get a ton of money, and it's like, oh, maybe you're not so independent it after all. It is such all. a contradiction. My, my friend described it as, you know, with one hand kind of giving a, come here, give me the money signal, and the other hand flipping the birds. And it's almost like in, in communist Russia, when you couldn't start off a speech without saying something great about Lenin. Here, politicians can't start off a speech without saying something bad about the feds. But you're right, the feds are giving us so much more money, and I see this kind of loss of self-sufficiency, not just among these Alaska Native villages, but all people in Alaska who used to build villages on their own and cooperate with their neighbor. What what happened? I mean, my theory is we caught a lot of oil money and for decades we were just rolling in this money and there's certain loss of self-sufficiency and independence that comes with that. And then there's a certain sense of expectations and entitlements that comes with that and I don't know what's going to happen now. Um, we are $3 billion in debt in Alaska and trying to work that out. And maybe some of our independent values will come back. 
<laughs> Interesting. Well, that I'm sure that could be a whole other episode, but I, I want to jump into the the topic at hand, and that's you know this is an adaptation podcast, and it's an area that you are working a lot in, and I think an area that's really going to be important coming forward. And so I I was trying to think of the best way to kind of talk. You sent me some materials. There was that New York Times article you sent me that was really good, and Looking at some of these coastal um, community, what's the expression? Native um, NVAers. It's native. I, I made my own little acronym, as, oh, as people a- like to do. But Alaska Native Villages, and the term is kind of confusing. But when I use that, I refer to both the physical settlements, like a village where people are located, but it's also a name for a federally recognized tribe. So there's 500 something federally recognized tribes in all of the United States, and about 40 percent of them, 229, are here in Alaska. Okay, and so there was one in particular I think we should talk about. There is it New Talk, New New Talk. New Talk. Yes, that's that's one that's mentioned. It's it's the one that's progressed the most in terms of trying to make an effort to relocate. Right. Okay. And so again, this was a difficult. I had you know I come up with my questions and it's just like all right, hearing the background of these communities and then talking about the the notion of that these. I guess it'd be good for you to maybe give a little bit of background, like okay, what is the climate impact that they're dealing with? that kind of feeds into what they're trying to do next. Sure. And I want to first give some props to another um, lawyer and person who actually got their PhD, Robin Bronin, who was the person who kind of exposed this to the larger world. She did her PhD on New Talk, and she paints an eloquent picture of, of people living in a place where the dump is eroding, um, the running water is, is not working, uh, there's constant o- overflow from the river, as well as they get ocean flooding, they're right there. Um, getting the worst of, of all worlds. And so you can imagine the health problems and this place kind of sinking into the mud. And so they have been trying to relocate since the early 90s. And there's just no law that provides for relocation or agency that's in charge. They try to form, they did form their own group, the New Talk Planning Group, to try to corral 25 or so state and federal agencies into helping them plan. But, but the, Feats that they had to go through. They it, they took seven years to get an act of Congress to allow for a land trade so they could trade their existing land for land in a new site that's in a refuge. And piece by piece, they have infrastructure being built there. But everything, you know, and I'm kind of an environmental person, so I, I like my environmental reviews, but there comes a time when they're not done terribly efficiency. If you have to get an environmental review for each little piece and each little ag- agency is doing something different and no agency wants to stand up and, and lead the way. And the other thing is that the costs are just phenomenal. Well, we're, we're talking like hundreds of, of the thousands of dollars, maybe 300 um, 300 million dollars for some of these villages to move between 200 million and, and 400 million, depending on the size of the village. So you're thinking, why is this so expensive? And part of that is because we're so based in this Western infrastructure idea of we have to have this school that runs like this and this wastewater treatment plant that's like this and our houses have to be this way and let's have union labor work on them instead of the people here. So we've gotten into this perverse system of how we construct societies and that kind of makes it hard. It gets ironic because people used to just get up and move wherever they want and that's not really an option anymore because of the land ownership and because of how ossified our system has gotten into the way we live with our infrastructure. 
Well, I think another part of it, too, is that, okay, these are relatively small communities, and so the notion of moving an entire community is not completely out of the question. It's obviously still very expensive, but you don't move Atlanta, you know? You might move a neighborhood. Right. It's flooding, but it's like... And, and that's where, to me, it, I get bewildered. It gets so complex so quickly is that, okay, so they're on some of these coastal communities, and, and looking at some of the photos, they're just it looks so desolate. You know, there might be one road and then these houses and... It's a hard life, it seems like, but they weren't there in the long term in the first place. What you described earlier about some of these, the the treaties that were passed, like the lands that they were agreed to go to, they weren't that those same tribes weren't necessarily in the spots that they are in right exactly yes they weren't necessarily in the exact spots they roam the area if you think about it you know some subsistence hunters today can go as far as 300 miles to to get what they need people traveled a long ways and they had different camps and a lot of people still have what they call fish camp in the summer a place where they go well when it came around the early 1900s um, missionaries were starting to settle people down in communities they wanted people to come there and go to their church but I think what really settled people down was the Bureau of Education had a requirement that people had to send their kids to school. So people were faced with this choice, okay, does my child have to go off to some boarding school or do we settle down in this village and build a school here? And that really corralled a lot of people to settle down in one place, even though they didn't want to. Not all of them selected that place. Another one of these poster children of relocation needs is Kivalina. And that site was selected by the federal government. It's on a barrier island and not in a good place right after they selected it. I mean, people knew their problems with erosion, but it was convenient for barging purposes and for government purposes. So, yes, these exact places were, were not ever meant to be permanently settled or permanently inhabited. Um, but they they are right now, and that's the situation we're stuck with. And so any potential area that they go, would it sort of be related to kind of historic tribal lands? Yes, and, and some places do have the advantage of having a hill nearby that they can move up on. Um, I can think of a couple of communities, Gullivan, Unilaclete, that are thinking about how to make that move up the hill. But other communities like Ignutok, well, there's... There's a lot of wetlands around those areas. Maybe you wouldn't think of Alaska as being marshy, but boy, out there in the tundra, it is full of wetlands. And so some places really don't have any great place that they could consider permanently settling. All right. And so I'm going to skip around the, the different examples. I think there's other communities, Shaktulik. That That's right. Yes. What, what, again, this is the frustrating bureaucratic aspect of this that I think that you're digging into is that one, that group, the community was looking to move, and so they started that process. But then some, they get money from other groups to like maintain certain things. And so for this clinic, I guess in that community, that I, I don't know if it was taken away, but the the people that was that were giving, I don't know if the federal government to maintain mm -hmm. that clinic, stopped giving it or said they wouldn't give it if you keep pursuing efforts to leave that location. And so it was a complete catch-22. It's like they're trying to be responsible yes. and move, and yet to sustain themselves for the time being, they were going to have money yanked away because they're planning to move. You explained it very well, it being this catch-22. Yes, I mean, most of these villages are, are getting funding for infrastructure either from the state through capital improvement projects or from some kind of federal grant. And 
there's not so much a written rule saying thou shall not uh, fund communities which are going to move, but there's real squeamishness on, on the part of agencies to do so. Um, and, and so more than one community, Shaftulik and Kaikuk too, in, in the interior, had told me this phenomenon of not being able to get any funding at their site if they talked about relocation and, and to the point where some people are even not wanting to use the re- the word relocation anymore. They're wanting to use the word site expansion or, or something like that and not wanting to announce plans. And I, I feel like what we're really lacking is some kind of law that would establish this threshold. Once you reach a certain point where it looks like you're no longer going to be inhabitable and you're going to have to move, then we're going to continue to invest for life, health and, and safety and evacuation but maybe not invest in other ways or start moving our investment towards the new site. So there has to be a balance. I, I totally understand no government wants to get stuck with funding two completely separate sites. So I, I get that, but I, I don't know. I mean, there, there are human rights issues. You don't want someone to just be wallowing in this pit of, of unhealthiness in the meantime until they can move. Well, it also describes, like, these are things that I just don't think about, but the, these coastal communities, they're being impacted more by these, these storms offshore. And before they had the, these, I guess these ice flows that mm-hmm. pr- protected them. And now those are disappearing. And I'm just curious, is there anything legally or just, you know, there's a whole, it, it, it's actual, you know, disaster declarations that you see for mm-hmm. tornado or for flooding. Is, What's the closest that we have for a disaster declaration for a climate change impact, be it that sea ice, be it sea level rise? I mean, is there anything? Well, you're so you said it very well that that crisis of not really having a, a law that kind of deals with these slow moving disasters like climate change. Yes, you can try to get a disaster declaration, and some of these communities have gotten a disaster declaration after they've had a big storm that came and say took away a, a chunk of their their property. But it, that can only happen in the event of something that's considered a disaster, and you have to actually go through the state, or now the tribe can go directly to the president. But it's kind of willy-nilly whether the president will declare a federal disaster or not. There's no criteria for it. FEMA just advises the president, and he may or he may not. So a couple of these communities just tried to test this system by saying, hey, could we try to get a disaster declaration under the Stafford Act is the act that provides for it. Could we try to do that for our, our slow moving disasters? So both New Talk under the end of the Obama administration and Kivalina under the early Trump administration tried and were denied and couldn't really appeal because it's all mysterious um, who gets denied and, and why you get denied. And so they didn't have anything to appeal from. So maybe you're kind of wondering when there's been all these studies showing that say every dollar put into pre-disaster spending is like worth $4 after the fact. Hey, why are we not putting any more money into the pre-disaster programs? There, There is such thing right now, without having to change any of our laws, there is such thing as a pre-disaster mitigation program that does give grants before a disaster. But last time I checked, there was only $30 million appropriated for the whole country. And I don't know how many billions of dollars were spent on, on Katrina, but you can imagine when we talk about disasters, we're often talking about the billions. So 30 million to spread between the whole country is not going to go very far. So I would advocate if, if people don't want to change the law, at least let's put more money into pre-disaster mitigation. I understand it's not glamorous because people don't always like to think ahead and it, it can look politically good to go and, and rescue someone after a disaster. But um 
it just would be so much more practical if we would shift our spending to before the disaster. Yeah, to me, just I'm thinking right now, just in my head, like, how do you define a climate change disaster? And like, is it true that the tundra that you know typically you, you build roads on up there, it's thawing, and so it makes it difficult yes. to get around. And so, if you can't provide emergency management to a certain population because the roads are falling apart, it, shouldn't the law acknowledge that melting tundra be a, a disaster? You know, a natural disaster. I mean, again, I would like to see some kind of threshold. Uh, like I mentioned, the threshold for when we would shift our major spending into a new site versus an old site. I'd also like to see a, a threshold and criteria for when you when you can maybe declare a slow-moving disaster and and start addressing it. Um, but I, I would say that even if we can't change the law, even if we can't under the current administration, at least if we could just lobby for more funding for that pre-disaster mitigation program and try to assist and empower tribes to apply for that funding, make it easier for them to apply for, then that would go a long way. Now, have you heard of any kind of legal precedent that there are are a few groups that are, something's happened locally, and so they're suing the federal government over our climate change policies. Like, we need to reduce our carbon emissions. And so it's this huge leap between, and not not that I'm against those lawsuits, but I'm just saying, Mm -hmm. like, X happened here, therefore we need to reduce our total carbon emissions over here. Do you feel like even at the these local community levels with these indigenous um, communities that they have any sort of legal case to kind of sue the federal government to take action on the broader issue of climate change because they're losing their communities? There, there is a case, and it's sort of like the case with the tobacco companies. Exxon and people like that, they knew there was some link between anthropogenic emissions and climate change as far back as the late 1800s. And recently it's come out how much Exxon knew and was trying to hide. So if you would kind of figure out who are the biggest fossil fuel emitter, emitters in the last 100 years, you could really pin it down to, say, 75 people entities who contributed maybe 90% of the emissions. So it's not as far-fetched as it initially sounds, the idea of of suing someone, whether it's the government for failure to regulate or, or the industries themselves. It's not so far-fetched to, to sue someone. But of course, that it's easier said than done. And I mentioned this village of, of Kivalina, and it did engage in this, this lawsuit. Um, it was brought against Exxon and, and various companies to try to get funding for them to move on grounds that the fossil fuel emissions had caused this climate change, which was eroding away their island. The case didn't go very far. The court determined that this was really a political question, meaning it's something that should be left to the legislative and executive branches to deal with and, and not something where a judge would make law to address. So it's, it's a good way to get out of deciding something if you don't want to address it. And other suits met similar fate. I, I know there's some people who are still interested in bringing a suit. Um, you know, someone said to me, well, this Kivalina suit, it didn't a- address a few areas here. They, these questions were not resolved. And so maybe we could kind of bring a slightly different claim. And I, I think one has to be careful how one approaches that because there's lots of eager environmentalists who are ready to bring a suit. And you want to be careful that you don't go and, and try to I don't know how to say this nicely, use a, a tribe uh, as your plaintiff to win your lawsuit because that has to be something that the community itself really wants to do and wants to bring. And I had heard from Kivalina that a, a few people hadn't even realized the suit was quite going on, that it maybe wasn't the whole community so much on, on board. And 
when you have all this tension from climate change and some of the stresses of being in the small village, you have to be careful before you decide to go and um, add more stress into it by, say, bringing a lawsuit. Well, I'm just curious of existing tools that might be used because as you described how these communities are going through all these sort of very minor bureaucratic things that are just stumbling blocks to creating momentum mm-hmm. to do what they need to do. is like, And I think of the eminent domain, this really huge power that the federal government has. It, has that ever been kind of considered? They use eminent domain to condemn that land. And, you know, the way the law works, as I understand, is like, well, they should they need to be compensated justly for mm-hmm. it. So does it like streamline the ability to kind of fund people to move? Would that be an option? I love the way you're thinking. And, and usually what happens with eminent domain would be that the government wants the property because they want it to build a road. or they, But here you have a situation where nobody really wants the property. The government doesn't want it. It's kind of out there in the middle of well, someone would say nowhere. Uh, these people would say it's the middle of everything. But so the government, right, it would it would incur these phenomenal costs to try to relocate it. So I, I can't see them using eminent domain. The only instance I can imagine eminent domain being used would be if the government decided the site was so dangerous, relocation was already in the works, and, and maybe you had someone who uh, just refused to move, and out of safety reasons, the government might buy them out whenever the relocation was already in the works, providing for all the other expenses. Because, like we talked about, I mean, if you're thinking maybe $300 million for a village, there's just no money. No one wants to come up with that money. No agency wants to be stuck with it. Congress doesn't want to appropriate it, and so it doesn't seem to be happening. Well, I, I guess I don't. I'm not familiar enough with eminent domain to think of how they've used it for setting aside natural resources. But to me, it's like they look at the Alaska coastline. They finally buy in. Okay, these models are uh-huh. saying we're going to lose X amount, and so we're going to start using eminent domain to kind of condemn these areas because we don't want people here, and it's almost putting land aside, and it'll be a future marine park or whatever it's going to be. But it's it's just it cuts through a lot of that bureaucratic baloney it's just that for eminent domain to, to happen there usually have to be some appropriation and congress is not going to want to make the appropriation for for that to happen so kind of parallel to what you're talking about when new talk did this land exchange and it got its exchange so it got land that was in a national wildlife refuge before so it's going to move there and the federal government is going to get the old place so one thing that is maybe kind of sounds a little bit like eminent domain there is such thing as a buyout FEMA can agree to buy out property when you're in in an area that's been damaged by a disaster or for some other purposes. But what happened here was FEMA suggested the buyout and was willing to only pay the value of the existing houses, which might be valued at, I don't know, $50,000. But to build a new house, it would cost maybe $400,000, which sounds phenomenal, Um but that's this this phenomenon we have of relying on all this Western infrastructure that's imported in from so far away and maybe importing in the labor as well. So people in New Talk, they're not able to afford the buyout because they, they if they got $50,000 from the government, they'd still be, I don't know, $300,000 or whatever short to get a new house. Okay, so I want to put you on the spot here. I want you to think on your toes. And so... Mm-hmm. I think, okay, you know, these numbers you're throwing out, 100 million, 200 million to move these tiny, tiny communities. It's so outrageous. And I just imagine it, it will f- not find too many backers. But I wonder yes. that, so my experience with coastal adaptation planning is in very urbanized areas of Florida. And, you know, Miami's doing some really interesting things. But 
is there an opportunity because it's it's would be such a profoundly kind of radical thing you're moving an entire community are there lessons to be learned you know in the next 5 10 20 years as some of these smaller communities move that these larger urban areas could benefit from so maybe there's a justification that's saying listen you know we know this is expensive but we feel like if there's some processes that we're we're experimenting with it's leading to reform in laws and legislation other larger coastal communities are going to benefit from this. And so do you, do you think anything at that really tiny scale would be applicable? At Absolutely. The- yes. Although there are major differences when you're thinking about this Arctic environment and this small environment and then the, the rights that come into play with dealing with indigenous communities versus regular, but there are several lessons that could be learned. One is just the legal structure. I mean, I'm scratching my head asking myself, okay, if you have a city that's incorporated here, then how does that work at the new place? Like, do they reincorporate there with the same amount of land? And then what access do people have to the old site? Do they completely lose the rights to their house? Um, are they allowed to come back there? Do we develop some kind of road between the old and new sites so that people can come and go? So there's issues of, of law, I think, that need to be settled that would apply across the board, even though there's unique issues in Alaska dealing with subsistence. There's also social issues and, and lessons that could be learned. You know, people are attached to their homes. I say especially so with these indigenous communities in Alaska because of the, the legacy of them being there so long. But you don't have to necessarily be an indigenous community. You could be a Cajun on the coast of Louisiana who's very attached to your homeland and doesn't want to leave. There are many place-based communities that don't want to leave. And so thinking socially, culturally, how is this going to work when we remove someone from their homes? What kind of social programs are we going to provide for them? So those are kind of legal, social, and then another angle could be physically, what can we learn? And I can't even get my mind around moving a place like Miami, all the the effort that would take. But I, I do think a little bit about the infrastructure and the opportunities to rebuild with better infrastructure. And this is going to be different in Alaska because we have these Arctic climates and it calls for really maybe different infrastructure to deal with. But it's it's probably true also that some of the infrastructure we have in the lower 48 is maybe not as sustainable as it could be. And so let's say in Alaska, we figure out how to maybe do something better with the renewable energy when we rebuild. Maybe the same could be said for in the lower 48. There might be lessons learned in terms of rebuilding with better infrastructure. And so the infrastructure, the laws and the social issues will all be informative, I think, for other relocations. Okay, so Barrett has just become president of the United States, and she has a supermajority in Congress. What kind of one or two major laws would you want to pass that you think would start to kind of deal with these issues? I mean, would it be at the FEMA level? Would it be even higher? I mean, what would you recommend if someone asked you, here's the top five recommendations, and nothing's going to get in our way of this? Okay, that's important that you say nothing is going to get in the way, because I was going to say, if I'm a dictator... And I'm someone who's maybe biased to like laws. I'd, I'd have a new law, have a climate change adaptation agency, have a climate change, the national climate change adaptation law that would kind of explain what adaptation the government is going to assist with. Here are your options community. You can have the government do this X, Y, Z or for you. X is going to cost this much on your part and this much on the government's part. It'll take this amount of time. It'll have this environmental review. So I'd love to see a law setting up options and an, an agency to to carry that out. Um, I guess my concern in democracy is before I would go and promulgate anything like that, I would really want to see if people want that. And 
part of my research in Alaska has has been that because I hope to come up with a set of recommendations. Like maybe we do need a law and our agency. And Alaska has a libertarian independent streak. And so it's it's intrigued me to see how much people here, even though someone like me feels like there should be a law and agency, it intrigues me that so many people in the village and out of the village don't particularly want to see a new law or agency and they, they roll their eyes and they, they don't want to hear about more bureaucracy. So I, I think before I would do anything nationally, I would want to see, mm, is there some, is there something we can do with what we already have? Can we empower FEMA a little bit more by tweaking its mission? Are there things we can do under the existing laws? I mentioned that pre-disaster mitigation program that can give grants for all kinds of things, but just not much money has been put into that program. So I think if I were president and had the congressional majority, I would start off incrementally small, kind of making some of those changes within the existing law and seeing if that could cover the problem. And then if not, and I could get more buy-in, then I, of course I'd love to have the, the National Climate Change Act in accompanying agency. I love it. Good stuff. Okay, so w- when I think of what you're dealing with up in Alaska, there, there's two ways of looking at the, the people there. And so they're, they're, they're just people. They're, they're human beings living in these communities that are being impacted by severe weather. But then on the other side, the, these are indigenous people that they're, they're tribal people that have just been in the area for a very long time. And so there's, it's almost two ways of trying to protect the people. And some people, and I'm going to play the devil's advocate. I think mm-hmm. the next part of this conversation is just like, you know, well, it'd be a lot cheaper if the small communities would just pack up. And head to Fairbanks. It would be we we will help them subsidize some apartments. You know, we'll start them off with some jobs. But why are we moving a whole community to as one community to another spot? And so there's that cultural element too. And so how how would you kind of explain the value in that approach? I totally get what you're saying because if you just look at the obvious cost, it does look like it's a lot cheaper just to you know pack up people, move them to Anchorage, throw a few dollars at them for some job training. And and here's why I think that that picture isn't complete. One, I think even if you just look at the the tangible cost of food assistance, job training, people are very adapted to live where they are. And they're not, they maybe don't have the skill set to thrive in a place like Anchorage. So you're going to have to put in some money towards getting people housing and getting them situated for jobs and food assistance and that sort of thing. So that that right there is the tangible cost that you're going to have to address, plus whatever counseling or, or social issues that people have from being displaced like that. Some other issues that I would encourage people to think about are, are just the the intangibles. I mean, now economists are just beginning to be able to put a price on things like that. They're just beginning to say, hey, the value of a clean environment is, is this much or the value of this beautiful area is, is this much to put a money value on it. And so even that that's repugnant to some people, I would say, OK, let's Let's put a money value on the value of some of these cultures and languages, which will die out as much as people do try to keep their culture and language alive. There is some assimilation that occurs. Um, let's put a value on that. There's a value of people being out there and having some degree of self-governance. For example, a lot of towns in Alaska choose to not have alcohol in them. So they're dry communities that would be lost if people move to Anchorage. So you're losing that part of the, the culture, the governance. And I mentioned before this idea of national security, even if you're not interested in human rights issues or or cultural issues, we are going to have a lot more traffic on this West Coast and the North Coast as the ice melts and, and more ships come through. These people already are the first responders if there's any accident or something. These people are going to be the first to see anything coming up if there's anything there. 
And then a, a third reason beyond the national security and the culture, it would be the scientific value of people's observations there. I think now we're just beginning to understand you might use a traditional ecological knowledge or whatever word you use for this. People in their daily lives make very important observations that help us understand about nature and the landscape and climate change itself. And, you know, scientists, they're, they're living in Fairbanks or in Juneau or in Anchorage. They might go out there to these sites for a couple of weeks to do some science, but they're not out there all the time. Whereas these people in the village, they're out there all the time. They see what's happening they can provide way more science than the people back in Anchorage are ever going to be able to get on their own. All right. I think you answered part of my next question. But so my background is is more on the wildlife conservation side. And I was actually just at a, a workshop at World Wildlife Fund. And so what the wildlife and biodiversity community is struggling with is that you can't save all the wildlife. Mm-hmm. Some biodiversity is going to not shift or adapt or, and we can't manage it. And of course, I've got to be careful here. I'm not trying to compare a bird to a human population. But mm-hmm. again, being the devil's advocate of like cultures come and go, they're temporal, mm-hmm. and maybe climate change is going to whack quite a few cultures out there. And you think of these South Pacific islands, you've had experiences in there, you know, as some of them, they're planning to move to New Zealand and these other places. They're for all intents and purposes, they're gone in, in regards to their sort of longstanding culture. And I think what you did, you, your previous answer, I think you justified in a lot of ways why there's value in kind of going through this process. But at the same time, there is going to come down these, these conversations about how much it, does it cost. And it's just you, you let these cultures kind of they disappear because they did not adapt to this climate change. And it, I mean, I'm not saying we should let it, but I'm just I bet it's going to happen. I hear you loud and clear. I hear you loud and clear. And uh, I'll say this. Yeah, there have been uh, there's some Alaska Native villages did disappear and not because of climate change so much, but just because of economic reasons. It just became infeasible for people to stay out there. Some of these places settled down because of mining or something else. And when the mining dried up, um, people left and those towns evaporated. In some cases, the tribe is still intact, maybe dispersed somewhere. In some cases, it's not. The, the tribe simply vanished. And yes, that's going to happen. Yes, there are going to be casualties, difficult choices, trade-offs that we have to make. I, I just want to put in another plug about why we, we should think about these last native villages and why there might be some value in or a reason for preserving them, acknowledging that Animals, species, cultures do come and go and have come and gone since the beginning of time. But I would say today in the United States, the federal government does have what's called a trust responsibility to indigenous communities. This wouldn't apply to non-indigenous communities, but to indigenous communities, this is kind of something that's there's no written law um, saying thou shall have the trust responsibility, something that's been understood since colonization, since the treaties were put into place. And this this doctrine of trust will come up over time in a lot of court cases, and it provides for, for the federal government, you know, if there's any doubt, put a hand on the scale in favor of the tribes because there is this trust responsibility on the part of the federal government. So that's one reason why there might be an extra duty to these particular cultures and people. Another reason, a doctrine that you might think of is this concept of environmental justice or climate justice. And this is not just a situation where, like I mentioned, some of these villages vanished because economically it didn't make sense for them to be there anymore. A lot of these villages were kind of forced to settle down. If, if they had been there on their own, they would have been able to adapt better, come and go. Um, they were fixed where they were, and they are some of the people who contributed the least to climate change, and, but they're 
on the receiving end to all the damage from climate change. So you might say that there's a moral obligation for the federal government and maybe the state to help these people move or adopt or whatever they need to do to continue their cultural and physical existence. I, I'm with you, and I just I just look back even on American history, and I think of manifest destiny. Yeah. And the whole, you know, and if people aren't familiar with that concept, you know, just the westward expansion and the, you know, the screwing over of Native Americans over that time period. And I, and you think, oh, we'd never do that again. But I worry because climate change is only going to get worse, and it becomes this big issue, and becomes a cost, and and it becomes almost an issue of survival in some ways. All of a sudden, we're re- like what you just described and how we're committed to maintain these sort of cultural traditions will just be thrown out the window. I mean, that's just, you know, that's a worry. It's a worry on my part, too. It, and certainly, I, lots of things have been thrown out the window in politics. And I think it is very important to look at this clearly and, and not blearily eyed. Um, I, I feel like there are sometimes government people kind of overpromise some of these communities. Yes, we're going to help you move. We're working on that right now. And it makes me a little uneasy. And I, I feel like there ought to be some realistic talks with communities. The co-relocation where one community moves to a brand new spot, that's the gold standard. That's the ideal. But it may or may not happen because there may or may not be money appropriated to it. I, I Thus far in the conversation, I've been kind of saying what the government should do, what the moral obligation is. I recognize very clearly that the government doesn't always do what I think they should do or, or what even is publicly acknowledged as the moral obligation. So given that kind of gap between moral obligation and the money that is going to be appropriated uh, to the, this cause. Now, let me mention, it's not that we don't have the money in the United States. It's just about is it appropriated towards defense or towards some other kind of health care or towards um, these people. And I don't. And it may be that that's not appropriate to them. So that's why I would like to see an agency have a very honest conversation with a village. Like here, here are all the alternatives. You know, maybe would you be willing to maybe with five other similar villages kind of conglomerate together and relocate somewhere? And then we could set up one health clinic for you in one school as opposed to setting five for five different villages. I, I feel like those options should be discussed and it should be made a little bit more clear to communities what all these options are, how much the government's willing to pay, and what would be the sweat equity or the expectation on those communities. Because it's it's obscene. I think about my husband's village where a new house costs $600,000. There's not even a toilet in there. Why on earth does a, a new house cost so much? And it's uh, middlemen are cutting some of it out, and there's imported labor and that sort of thing. And there definitely needs to be... Uh, sweat equity and, and kind of local ownership and the community kind of driving the process and being willing to, to put money and time and labor into it so that these houses won't cost that much. Okay, I need to wrap up this conversation relatively soon, but there's a few other topics I'd like to get through. I, the more I think about this, I mean, we've touched upon a lot of cultural issues, but to me, ultimately, I think the, the very practical advice that you're giving here is, is legal advice. And I like to promote my podcast in different locations. And, you know, I, I think actually law schools would benefit from the conversation that we're having here. What would you recommend? Are, are there programs out there, law programs that, it, as you describe it, there's not a lot of adaptation law, but are there existing programs that are doing adaptation law? Or if you could talk to sort of young environmental lawyers out there that are interested in getting in this, what sort of advice would you give them to kind of what would be next steps? 
I would say at Columbia, um, Michael Gerard is, is working on this and has a program. Um, Robin Kundis Craig is another commentator. There's several commentators who I've seen out there who are really hitting this issue, but I, I find that the, the lawyers aren't really talking to the social scientists or the others. So you have a lot of interesting stuff published in law review journals, and then you have social scientists who aren't really looking into that. So I, I'd like to see more efforts come together. I'd also like to see law schools address an issue that I didn't even hit on, and I'll try to explain it just briefly. It's this idea that, boy, our, our, in, you're in conservation, so you know this, nature changes all the time, even without climate change, species come and go. With climate change, the, the grounds are, are changing really fast, and there may be some species lost, and the laws are not made to keep up with this. We have these kind of stationary laws like the Endangered Species Act, uh, even our adapt, uh, even our um, administrative procedure act, which kind of governs rights to have a hearing or notice and comment before some new regulation is issued, they can't keep up with all these changes. And so, I would love to see law schools looking at how we can make laws more adaptable that really allow adaptive management, but not cut out the public or not turn the agencies into little dictatorships who can do whatever they want just whenever the climate changes. All right, that's pretty specific advice. Okay, so you'd mentioned that you were married to someone who's in a tribe, uh, uh, you know, a tribal yes. leader. Uh, nice guy, I assume. So I, I'm just curious what you've talked about here and all the things that you're dealing with and your conversations with your husband. Are, are these issues that are coming up within his tribe? Absolutely. We have fascinating conversations about this. You know, he's the, the leader of his tribe. He's the chief, and he's also a leader in some of these other areas. And so he's very concerned about this, and I'm concerned about it from this kind of weird outsider environmental angle. And so there's a, a tension and people like me coming in and trying to address their problems. It's almost like continued colonization sometimes. And we have to be careful about telling these people how to address it. But yes, they're concerned whether they're in the interior or on the coast, there's concern because they want to practice their life ways and the species are shifting. The climate is changing. It's harder and harder to do their subsistence and they're dealing with floods and erosion. So they, they'd like to find some solution to this or at least some way they can keep on practicing their life way. I, I guess that's really good for you though. It's just, you're married into a, a tribe. And so you're probably seeing in ways that most people can't even just even fathom, you know, getting that sort of penetration of the culture. So it is fascinating. And I, I just have to remind myself though, that I'm, I'm still my, my nerdy little um, kind of non-native PhD person. And I will, I will always be that person. And I will occasionally put my foot in my mouth and, and say the wrong thing. And unfortunately, people are very forgiving. Insulted in ways you can't even, yeah, it's like a minefield. When I was in Australia and I, you know, dealt with Aboriginal issues at the entire time, I'm like, okay, just, just don't say anything to insult anybody. So I, I can appreciate that. And yet you have to say something. And sometimes these difficult conversations have to be had. Like when I talked earlier about, hey, we need to actually think frankly about these alternatives other than what if the government doesn't come and relocate you? Um, that would be insulting to a lot of people to, to hear me say that. But I, I feel like, Part of our climate justice compels us to be honest and to say these hard things and lead these hard conversations like we're having now and not just overpromise people and then just kind of end up not being there whenever they erode off into the ocean. You know, I, I wonder if they do this in Alaska, but when I was in Australia for a few years, it was, it was fascinating that like you'd kick off any sort of meeting, a government meeting or just a, a county meeting and even if there wasn't an indigenous person in the room, they would kick it off by like, we want to first acknowledge the traditional owners of this land before we start this meeting. 
And I was just, it was amazing. It was the coolest. And you'd have these like rednecks or whatever, and they would start all mm. these meetings off. And I mean, Alaska, because I guess the tribes are closer to, is there anything like that? There is, yes. And I, not all the time. And it's usually natives who are doing it rather than, um, <laughs> the rednecky people. But yes, there is that acknowledgement of whose, whose traditional land is where. Um, and I, I, I like you. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, the first couple of times, I'm just like, I'm looking around the room. There's not any indigenous people, and yet they're still <laughs> yeah. doing it. And I'm like, it's the ultimate political correctness. But I think they truly, I mean, Australia, even to this day, has a terrible record on Aboriginal issues. But I think they're yeah. trying. And But it's just even that acknowledgement. Can you imagine just going to Alabama at some kind of Farm Bureau meeting and having the guy stand up and say, you know, <laughs> I want to acknowledge our traditional landowners here. It's not going to happen. So it's it's definitely a step, and I, I guess we have to be careful though that thinking that when someone, whenever we let's say this, the state of Alaska votes to recognize twenty indigenous languages. I mean, let's not be doing things just to pat ourselves on the back and say that we're not racist. I mean, we have to be doing things that are actually meaningful and helping the people. And so I, I find sometimes I'm torn between being delighted by these gestures and thinking, okay, we're just throwing crumbs at people. Oh, totally, I totally agree. Okay, last two questions. What's next for you? I'm going to wrap up this PhD eventually, eventually, and I will have my consulting business uh, where I want to work with tribes and possibly conservation groups or municipalities and doing things like helping design better laws or land use codes or tribal codes that would help with adaptation at planning. We didn't even get to the question of planning. Um, I'm a little dismayed with Western planning and like to think about how to help tribes with plans that might be a little bit more appropriate for, for their needs. And then I'm a run-of-the-mill lawyer, so if something comes my way dealing with natural resource law or native law, I'm always happy to grab it. Very cool. And I hope you, you go out of your way to sort of go to conferences and, and, and talk about these issues because I think people could benefit from your firsthand experience there. It just need to get, get this out, you know? It's, it's a new territory. It's an emerging issue, so. Oh, yes, indeed. Okay, final question I ask every guest is, who would you recommend to come on the podcast? I, you know, you, you've been hearing, like I keep calling myself this nerdy non-native. I think it'd be really neat to talk to a native person and get their perspective and see how it differs from mine. Um, someone who's, and you probably have maybe talked to some people who are in leadership, but it'd be really interesting, not even a native person, just someone on the ground who's name is completely unknown, but who's right there living with it to kind of tell you from the hearts uh, what they're seeing and feeling. And so I could certainly offline come up with some names for you, someone like that, but it would be something kind of unglamorous, but maybe would give your listeners a lot more insight into what's happening to some people on the ground. No, you were my first indigenous themed topic. So I haven't certainly had any uh, uh, Native American person. So yeah, if you have recommendations for a person to come on, I will take it. Yeah, I'll think about that and get back to you. Okay, so uh, any final thoughts for my listeners? Well, I just appreciate anyone listening to me rant on like this. And I guess my contact information, I'd be glad to have that be made available on the website if people do want to continue this dialogue. I, it's always something that I'm happy to talk about. I, I'm so happy that we, we were able to connect, and thanks for coming on the podcast. You're doing some really cool, innovative work, and uh, I'm, I think you are going to be in demand as the years go by. And for everybody out there, this is America Daps, the climate change podcast. Okay, thanks to Barrett Ristroff for coming on. What a fantastic conversation. Now I just want to jump right into the very short segment I have on my time at the Climate March. Okay, stick around. 
Hey, Adapters, we are here on our way to the Climate Change March in Washington, D.C., and I have a very special guest with me today. Introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Max Parsons. Yes, the Max Parsons, my 13-year-old son who I've dragged on the Climate March. Max, what are you expecting today? Uh, lots of posters uh, about climate change. That's very profound, Max. Now, what do you think when you think of climate change? And don't say things as if I brainwashed you. Uh, I think of sea level rise mostly because I feel like when people think of climate change, not many of them like think of sea level rise. Uh, are you hopeful about dealing with climate change? Uh, yeah. Why so? Well... There are lots of people here, and lots of people believe in climate change now than they used to, so I think they have a better chance against climate change. Hey, I didn't script that. I'm very excited he said that. All right, we'll be checking back in in a little bit. Hope you all are enjoying your climate march. All right, everybody. Hey, adapters. I got Tim Watkins on the line. We are here at the climate march. How's it going, Tim? Uh, it's, it's going well. It's really crowded. There's just packed, huge, huge, huge crowds. Uh, I'm down at the sort of end of the mall facing the Capitol where people are assembling. And I can't even tell if the march itself has started because it's so packed. So uh, all in all, it's a good time. Right. We might actually be close to each other. We didn't coordinate. So I'm right near the reflecting pond at the Capitol, but there's like this impenetrable wall of people. So I'm kind of hanging out here. Well, I'm at I'm at third in Madison, so you're a little further east from me, and there's probably ten thousand people between us. Well, tell me, like, if people aren't here, what's the vibe? What's the sense? What are you seeing? Um, very energetic. It's uh, there's no chanting going on at the moment that I'm hearing, um, but people are upbeat. There's a lot of voices, a lot of conversations going on. Millions of signs. I don't see any signs about um, adaptation, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I'm seeing generic signs, you know, with the earth, uh, signs about protect nature, climate change is real, um, a fair number of sort of anti-Trump administration um, and, and policy sorts of protest signs, lots of references to the Koch brothers, um, a lot of uh, paper windmills that are kind of nice. And I'll tell you one that I particularly like that this uh, your listeners might appreciate. There's a poster that has the earth, and uh, half of it is blue and half of it is red, and it says, no sides in climate change. So, well, you know, that's, a, that's an effort to be explicitly uh, bipartisan or apolitical, and, and I think that that's true. And, uh, you know, certainly in the case of adaptation, that's uh, I think that's the reality. So... Well, I agree. I haven't seen anything on adaptation, but I have seen a few things alluding to dealing with sea level rise and things like that. Um, but no, definitely great vibe. I saw some signs like, you know, we are in this together. So, you know, people are looking at the sort of broader scope of what climate change is all about. So that's encouraging. Yeah. And it, I, you know, Trump is coming up, but I'm not seeing a lot of it. And that, you know, I think that's good. That's, it's not an anti-Trump march. It's like, this is a huge monumental issue march. And, Let's do something about it. So uh, I think it's pretty positive out here. Yes. Yeah. And I would say size-wise, just in case people are curious about the crowds, um, this is much, much, much bigger than last week's March for Science. Um, 
not as big as the the women's march that I can tell. Uh, I think the women's march was unprecedented, frankly. Um, but it is it is clearly uh, the biggest thing in town, and hope to see a lot of media coverage because there's just a huge number of people here. Well, did you catch that? And I'm sure the symbolism was completely, you know, uh, uh, intentional. Was on EPA the climate change website came down today. I saw a a friend post a note about that on Facebook. I didn't follow the link, but um, yeah. So there's now more than ever. I guess there's a need for this. But yeah, you go to the page on climate change, and it just says this site is being updated, and that's all there is. So yeah, wow, that's a such a cynical move, but that's I think what we have to expect. You know, I think all the people here represent a lot more positive energy than any sort of cynicism they throw out this way so i'm very encouraged by what i see out here well i'm going around i've interviewed like four or five people already and i'm just chatting with folks so i'm really getting a good sense of why people are here so i'm gonna probably interview a couple more people but uh i guess you and i will check in maybe uh in a few days just to break down what we just saw so all right yeah have a great march doug and uh, enjoy the day all right you too tim bye bye Hey folks, I'm here at the march and I'm walking around and I'm talking to folks and I am here with Matthew. So I went up to Matthew because he's wearing a Florida State University hat and I I lived in Tallahassee so we had that in common but he's here for the climate march. So why are you here exactly? So I am a religious leader in a Christian denomination and I feel like it is our responsibility to take care of the one and only planet we've been blessed with. And so with the policies that are coming out of the White House right now, it feels to me that they are going against everything that we should be doing to protect the environment. And I wanted to be a part of something where our voice is going to be heard, hopefully, um, for the betterment of this planet that we've been given. So if you talk about climate change in church, do you find a receptive audience or is it a challenge? What kind of messages do you use? So I actually, actually don't work in the church. I actually work for a nonprofit organization, but I am an ordained minister. The church I do go to, they do talk about climate change frequently um, throughout my denomination and is very well received. People realize that um, things are not going in the right direction. Um, and so most of the messages are, are, are against pollution, against the destruction of the earth, and for protecting of the resources we've been given, and it's very well received. Okay, for people that aren't here, just finally, you know, just kind of look around, describe what you see so people have a sense of what we're doing, like experiencing here. There are so many people here. It's great to see people of all ages from young kids up to older people who have seen people walking around with signs wanting to protect their grandkids. So it just wide variety of people and I would say probably tens if not hundreds of thousands of people here across the geo spectrum. All right, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey everybody, I'm back. I'm with Ke- Zach. <laughs> Kevin and Ben. Ben. All right. Hey, guys. Hey, what's hey, going what's on? what's going on, man? How's it going? <laughs> if I get you scoot in a little yeah, bit, so yeah. work with the audio. Um, so why are you guys here today? Just here for the environment, man. You know, it's, it's our civic duty at this point. Um, we've got a responsibility. We can't just not show up. 
Everyone else was doing it. No. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, th- I feel like there's been a lot of real positive movement towards protests in, in this first hundred days where it's been effective at seeing huge groups of people speak out against this clown sitting on this throne that it doesn't matter even necessarily the subject. I'm sure there are people here fighting for climate change. There are people fighting for immigrant rights. It doesn't matter what people are here for, but there's people here. And it shows that there's unrest, that there's actual demand for change, and that with enough people, it's obvious, man. The more we actually get out here and do this, the more attention we can bring towards these huge issues like climate change. Like, serious note, like this is the only thing we can do, really. There's not much we can actually... It's not like we can actually go to the streets and, like, make change happen unless we come together first okay so do you sense that this is more of an anti-trump march or is this a climate change march i think i think it's just an overall we need to change a lot of things um you know while most of the people here i mean i would say mostly all the people here probably didn't vote for him uh (laughs) he's he's what we have to you know we have to fight it and uh you know we gotta we gotta make that change in the administration first before we can you know inflict you know, but deep policy change. That's also, like, I feel like that's why it's important to show that we don't need to be divisive about yeah. it. So while we can disagree yeah. heavily, and while we should be disagreeing heavily, we should at least make an active attempt at being, at pushing that positive message yeah. of showing the effectiveness, the efficacy of actually getting out there and protesting together. Yeah. Yeah, but- okay, so one of you have alluded to it, but so tomorrow, the next day, what are you guys planning to do? What are we doing tomorrow? <laughs> well, the most important thing we can do, obviously, I mean, is vote. Uh, your local elections are incredulously uh, important. Uh, you know, you can we can get you know sidetracked about the, the federal government and everything, but in all reality, it comes down to you know your state and local governments. Um, you know, who you put into office is, is who who's going to represent you. So if you don't like your representatives, uh, then you know you've you've got to change that. Yeah, we got to head up, head back to Buffalo tomorrow, so a lot of that time is going to be spent in the commute in the car, but. Tomorrow, specifically, if that's what you're actually wondering about, probably going to be uh, enjoying the the town a little bit more. It's always fun to come visit DC. You got some much better weather than the science march. Oh, we're actually yeah. talking about literally tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> actually tomorrow. I thought you meant the metaphorical, like oh. tomorrow's day. Okay, last question. Just maybe one of you could just describe for people that aren't here. Describe the scene around here. What kind of vibe are you getting? It's almost a festival. Like it feels like a festival. There are people selling goods. There's a lot of food. Everyone's just coming together to try to do what they can. Awesome, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks, brother. Oh, okay, adapters. That is a wrap for this amazing episode. Thanks again to Barrett Ristoff for coming on the podcast. It was such a pleasure to host her. She is doing some amazing work up there, and she is one of the most passionate interesting thinkers on adaptation that I've ever come across. She's going to be a huge resource for many people and groups in the years to come. So look out for Barrett. She's just, I was just so smitten with that conversation. I think she's just, she has her head on straight on this issue. And with the tribal communities, it's just front and center of what we're going to have to do. It's a test run for these larger communities that are going to have to deal with translocating people and dealing with adaptation in a very serious way. Okay, housekeeping, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. If you are a new listener, just if you're using iTunes, hit subscribe. Also, there's a Facebook page and a community group page on Facebook. You have to join the community group, but we have some nice conversations. We share photos. I share kind of updates that I wouldn't necessarily do on the page. So please just search America Adapts and you'll find it. If you are a tweeter, I'm at Twitter at USA Adapts. So tweet me stories or tell me about things or potential speakers. And again, yes, if you have ideas for 
for guests. Uh, I'm never at a loss, but I'm always interested in that random, really cool conversation with someone. So I'm at americaadapts at gmail.com. And please, the highlight of my week is when I get the random email from someone who just tells me that they found the podcast and they say something about it, what they like about it. And not too many people have said what they don't like about it, but I'll take those too. But please, if you're, you're if you were thinking about contacting me, I heard from someone recently and it just made my, my week. It was just a really interesting email and we're actually going to chat soon because we're going to do a follow up. But please take the time. And write a review. If you're on your iPhone, open it up right now. It's good for for my when people try to search my wet iTunes link. If you do a review, it, it looks better. So go in and rank it. It's on your iTunes. They make it much more complicated than they should. But you just go and you search for it and you hit that write a review and do the stars and you write something. It is greatly appreciated. And again, I'll be at the National Adaptation Forum next week. If you're there, look me up in advance or when I'm there, email me. Maybe we could, if there's more than one, which I'm sure there is, we could all meet for a drink and have a little hangout and can tell me what's wrong with the podcast. And after a beer or two, I will be open-minded about that. So please, let's try something, do something like that. Okay. And again, we have just partnered with the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, Beth Gibbons, the managing director. They are at adaptationprofessionals.org. If you're an adaptation professional, or even if you're just curious, join. It's, you know, it, it's a, it's a growing network. This is an emerging field and they are on top of things. And we have just formalized a partnership where we're going to sort of promote each other. And because uh, obviously there's a lot of synergy and I promised I'd never use the word synergy in my podcast, but I just did. All right. On that note, until next week, adapters, you all have a great week.